and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Ros Taylor. On today's show, we have a grotesque ecosystem of middle-brow entertainment for you, featuring Labour's win in Batley and Spen, the end of compulsory mask wearing, arguably the least onerous feature of the last 16 months, but hey. We'll be hearing from Chris Worrell of the Red Brick blog on the rise of yimbyism, and we'll be talking about statues. Why is the Diana one not very good? And given so many are being pulled down, should we still be putting them up? All that and more on this week's Bunker. Welcome back to the weekly panel edition of The Bunker. Before we start, a quick reminder. Our much-postponed debut live show, The Bunker vs. Oh God, What Now?, is now happening on Tuesday the 10th of August at the Leicester Square Theatre in London. You can see regulars Andrew Harrison, Yasmin Sirhan, Arthur Snell and Ahir Shah, plus the Oh God, What Now? team of Ian Dunt, Dorian Linsky, Naomi Smith and Alex Andreu in an exciting double header. Tickets for this pod clash are out now at leicestersquaretheatre.com and Patreon people get 10% off with the exclusive discount code. See your Patreon page to find it, or why not sign up? Now, let's meet today's panel. First up, hello to former Labour spin doctor and host on Times Radio, Aisha Hazarika. Hello. We're not going to be getting into the messy details of Michael Gobe's private life. We'll leave Sarah Vine to do that in her next column for the mail. But you've been talking to Jackie Weaver, haven't you? Did you have the authority to do that? (laughs) I was. I was so excited to be speaking with Jackie Weaver. And also, not only was I so excited, like everyone in my entire office, including our tech operator, who's this lovely young guy called Jack and she's a legend to him so she's kind of transcended the age uh, demographic and and gender as well she was absolutely brilliant we were having this discussion um about this great new book by Marianne Seagart called The Authority Gap and it's why is it that women in leadership positions are often not taken seriously and of course Jackie Weaver's infamous Hanford Parish Council Zoom call is the epitome of that What was really interesting is she was saying to us that even though she came across as being really confident and everybody was like, wow, Jackie Weaver's got the authority, she's in control of everything. She said she was so nervous because that man has been so horrible to her. And as she was like about to press the button to kick them out of the Zoom call and put them in the waiting room, her hand was shaking as she was doing it. So it was amazing that even the great Jackie Weaver, you know, is still human. And we had a great conversation about leadership. She's such a legend. In fact, we should get her on here, actually. (laughs) That's a thought we should. I know it can get, I've had very, very tense Zoom calls sometimes. I think they've almost been even worse than in real life because you can't make that eye contact to ease things, can you? It's just, it's just terrible. And also, once all the men started ganging up in her, it was just like a, it was such a powerful force, and they were all screaming, you know, "You've not got the authority, Jackie Weaver!" Like it was just like sort of, it was sort of out of control. <laughs> and then Sue's iPad, you know, was like her only defender. I mean, it was really, it was, yeah. I think things have gone a bit feral on Zoom. We need real life back, clearly. Yeah. Dominic Cummings has put out another blog post today. Um, It's it's behind a paywall, so times must be getting harder. Um, For those of us who aren't disposed to add to the Cummings family wealth, um, what revelations did he have for us today? 
Ross, I'd love to say he had a really crisp, clear, succinct revelation. It's just more rambling. It's just more <laughs> inane rambling, which is sort of, you know, clearly a lunatic. Also, no self-awareness whatsoever. But also, like, it reads a bit like a diary of a teenage girl that's been scorned and just cannot <laughs> let it go. <laughs> I mean, m- most of it is like, oh, that Boris Johnson's such a shitbag. Like, I can't believe what a shitbag is. It's like, you worked for him. You put him into number 10. Like, which bit of this are you missing? It- it's just more of that, basically. He started calling Johnson the trolley, hasn't he? <laughs> Which is quite... <laughs> <laughs> his opinions veer about so much. I might pick that up. Also <laughs> joining us this week, welcome back to former diplomat Arthur Snell. Hello, Ros. Arthur, Britain and the US are leaving Afghanistan this week, or very soon, and the Taliban are moving back in. What does this mean for Afghans? Well, it's probably pretty bad news for many Afghans, particularly women, particularly those that have embraced a slightly sort of uh, less conservative lifestyle and so on. In spite of all of that, I'm, I think, relatively unusual in that I actually think that President Biden has made the right decision. And I think that even if Trump had done this, I would have sort of supported the decision. Having spent quite a lot of time in Afghanistan myself, I'm reasonably convinced that Western powers are never going to succeed in transforming that country. And therefore, it ends up being a sort of pointless displacement activity to throw endless resources in to try to create a place that we can't create. And ultimately, we have to allow Afghanistan to find its own future, I think. So we should just bow out at this point? Or is there anything that can be done diplomatically? Well, I think we should bow out. I think there are two things to think about. You know, why did we go there in the first place? Well, because of 9-11, it was completely understandable that the Americans wanted to make sure that what had happened on 9-11 could never happen again. Now, it's arguable that they achieved that by the end of 2001. So we're talking nearly 20 years ago, when they sort of booted the Taliban off off the stage. Now, the fact that the Taliban are coming back doesn't mean that we're going back to the situation that we were in before, uh, not the least because basically, back in 2001, prior to the 9-11 attacks, no one was paying any attention whatsoever to Afghanistan. And in spite of this withdrawal, there's still going to be a lot of attention. There's still going to be quite a lot of aid money going in. There's still also going to be various uh, sort of eyes and ears on the ground. There's reporting that the CIA will continue to have a major presence there. So I think it's a very sort of lazy argument to say, well, you're just letting al-Qaeda come back in if we bow out. I think we have to allow Afghanistan and regional powers, including some that have played a very negative role, such as Pakistan, to decide how they're going to deal with this very complicated and fragile country. We're delighted to be joined this week by John Rental, chief political commentator for The Independent, and according to Dominic Cummings, part of a grotesque ecosystem of middle-brow entertainment. Sounds great. That's really our stock in trade round here. I think we might make that our new tagline on the bunker. Welcome to the bunker, John. Uh, Thank you. Did he really say that about me? How lovely. (laughs) Pretty much, yeah, he did, yeah. He and I are getting on like a house on fire on Twitter at the moment. That's what I thought. Why has he picked on you? Is it it a badge of honour among political hacks when he has a go? Well, I certainly regard it as such. I rather like him. I think he's a brilliant commentator. Uh, I've even stumped up the uh, £10 a month to to read his... uh, his excellent commentary. I mean, his analysis of uh, the personality of the Prime Minister is uh, is absolutely fascinating. 
What do you make of the uh, latest revelations about Johnson's character? Because he's been trying to explain why he went to work for a man whom he visibly despises today. What new light have we got on this issue? Yeah, I mean, obviously, he tries to be quite colourful uh, and expressive, but I do think he captures something of the essence of Boris Johnson's rather complicated character. I mean, he, Dominic Cummings, says that, that Boris Johnson's the opposite of David Cameron. David Cameron seemed very simple on the outside, but you assumed there were hidden depths, although uh, Dominic Cummings didn't think there were any. Whereas Boris Johnson you know, has actually got hidden depths. He seems like a simple clown on the outside, uh, but he's actually quite a complicated character. And this interesting division that uh, Dominic Cummings sets up between normal Boris, who's useless, and self-aware Boris, who is sometimes uh, extremely calculating and ruthless, uh, but you don't see the self-aware Boris often enough, according to Dominic. Yes, it's almost like a dual personality, isn't it? A Jekyll and Hyde setup. Very strange. Yeah, I think there's an element. I think, and I think there's an element of truth in that. First off, some heartening news. As you'll know by now, Labour's Kim Leadbeater is the new MP for Batley and Spen, following in the footsteps of her sister, Jo Cox. Despite warnings that Labour would lose, she won the by-election by 323 votes, with George Galloway coming third. And the heat is off Keir Starmer for a week or so, anyhow. Ayesha, give us the Labour insider's verdict on this result. How did Leadbeater turn it around? Well, I think a, a large part of it was down to her. I mean, I was up in Batley and Spen the week before the by-election. And I have to say the mood on the ground from the Labour camp was very subdued. I mean, I was with quite a few Labour MPs as they went door knocking and the 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 response was not great at all. There was a lot of apathy towards the Labour Party. There was a lot of hostility towards the Labour Party as well. And of course, it's a seat which is very divided along racial uh, lines as well. I think she is a very exceptional candidate. The fact that out of 16 candidates, she was the only local candidate. Of course, she is steeped in the history of Batley and Spell with the tragic murder of her sister. Um, So she's very, very well known. You know, loads of people were coming up to her and, you know, they might not have liked the Labour Party, but they really liked her and they were very um, in admiration of the fact that she was standing in this seat with, with all its problems. But I think the thing that really turned it around was the Matt Hancock affair because it was starting to come up on the doorstep on the day that Matt Hancock resigned. Andrew Bridgen, one of the uh, Tory sort of quite right wing backbenchers, came onto my Times radio show and he said he had been up in Batley and Spen. It was coming up on the doorstep and people were absolutely appalled by it, like across the, the constituency. The other thing, which I think is really important to think about is that the Labour Party gets slagged off a lot about being really crap at the moment. But the one thing it has proved it's still quite good at in this by-election is its ground operation. When the margins are so tight in these kind of by-elections, you'll get out the vote campaign, particularly the 40 hours before voting occurs is really important. And there were so many Labour MPs going up. I got on a train from London to Stevenage on the morning of the by-election and the train was packed 
with Labour MPs and like big hitting Labour MPs, like big, you know, shadow cabinet people. So I think the ground operation was very good compared to the Tory ground operation. When I went up there, you just couldn't find the Conservative candidate. They were sitting back. They were really complacent and they were just hoping that George Galloway was going to stir up so much trouble and take away so many votes from the Labour Party with his kind of horrible divisive politics that they just wouldn't have to do anything. So I think it's a combination of all of those things. But certainly her being brilliant, Matt, the Matt Hancock affair and the way the PM handled it and a, a pretty complacent ground operation from the Conservative Party all resulted in that victory. Labour's new campaign chair, Shabana Mahmood, she's got some credit for the result as well, hasn't she? What's she like and what, what sort of impact has she had? How is she changing the way they fight by elections? I think Shabana is a, a really good politician. She's very well respected. She's very, very smart. She knows different communities very well. I think she certainly helped improve the operation compared to Hartlepool. The the operation Hartlepool where Labour lost really badly to the to the Tories and lost that seat. The operation was a bit all over the place. And of course, the candidate was the wrong candidate. It was somebody who had been a Remainer in a very, very Brexity seat. It just didn't fit particularly well. So I think Shabana just got a grip. I think she really encouraged Labour MPs to get on the train and get up there. They were sort of like a three-line whip on people, and they did um, uh, abide by it. And and I think it was just a it was just a sharper sharper operation. But she is seen as a very good thing, and her deputy is a guy called Connor McGinn. He's really good as well. He's very sharp. He's very personable. He's very uh, experienced as well. How can Starmer take this win and run with it, if you like? People are talking about the party conference speech in the autumn as key to him taking back command of the party, if you like, and showing the way forward. What do you think he can do right now to build on this? Well, he owes Kim Leadbeater a lot because she has bought him some time. I think if we had lost that seat, he would definitely be facing, um, if not a leadership contest, then you know the sort of sword of Damocles would be hanging over him between now and conference. I mean, his conference speech is going to be vital, but his whole demeanour at conference is going to be really important. And remember, this is going to be the first time he's ever actually met the party faithful face to face because he became leader of the Labour Party in the middle of the pandemic. I think what he's got to do more is set out what his political mission is. People understand he's a very decent guy. He's a very noble person. He's very professional. He's done big jobs before. He can be very forensic when he needs to. I think people accept that about him, but they want to see some passion. They want to see some fire and they want to know what is he about? What would a what would Britain look like under Keir Starmer? What's his vision and what's his political mission? What is the thing that gets him out of bed in, in in the morning in terms of right you know if I if I only get to do sort of three things as prime minister what are the three things I want to do I think that's the kind of thing people are expecting um to see between now and conference and the second thing they're expecting to see is for him to sharpen up, up his operation he has had lots of criticism about the press operation about the political 
operation about his own officers operation. He's just had a new director of strategy start today, a woman called Deborah Mattinson, who's really, really good. She used to work for Deborah. Um, she used to work for Gordon Brown. She wrote a great book about Labour losing the Red Wolf. Um, he's got a guy called Matthew Doyle, who's starting as an interim director of communications. Matthew Doyle worked for Tony Blair. He's seen as a very, very, very sharp uh, communications operator. And he has a new guy called Luke Sullivan, who's just begun as his political director, who again is very, very well respected. He's been in the whip's office for many, many years. He knows the parliamentary Labour Party like the back of his hand. He understands the party very well. So people are hoping that these are the things he'll be focusing on and he will sharpen up his team. John, what does this win mean for Starmer? Is the heat off him for the moment? Yes. I mean, I think you've only got to imagine what would have happened if Labour had lost that seat. There wouldn't have been an immediate leadership challenge, but I think uh, the Labour Party could have gone into a death spiral uh, at that point because it would be so difficult to see how it can get out. Now, obviously, logically, you know, just winning isn't very different from from just losing. You know, elections are binary. I mean, and if you do win, the story is completely different. And I think that story is now sellable by Keir Starmer, the idea that he can actually uh, make progress against uh, the Conservatives in those heartland, northern, working-class leave seats. It doesn't look like progress, but when you consider that the leave vote wasn't split this time and George Galloway intervened to try and disrupt the Labour effort, uh, it was progress in a sense. And it does suggest that Nikia Starmer can actually lead the party out of the mess it's in. You wrote in The Independent that Johnson should be worried by this win. Aisha's told us that the Conservative candidate didn't seem to put in a lot of effort here. Why do you think Johnson should still be worried? I mean, it was a very close result. Well, because, as I say, if Labour had lost it, then I think Boris Johnson wouldn't have needed to worry uh, anything like as much because uh, he would be carrying all before him, as he did in Hartlepool. But the fact that Labour was able to put up a fight uh, and hold its ground uh, in the most difficult circumstances um, with the George Galloway uh, intervention, I think suggests that you know the party is still viable. I mean, obviously, the next election is going to be very, very hard for Labour to win in the sense of you know depriving the Conservatives of a majority. But it's a lot more possible having held badly in Spen than it would have been if uh, if the party had lost it. There's no shortage of potential ammunition for Starmer, but very little of it seems to cut through. What should he focus on? Strategic patience, I would say. I mean, the problem he faces is that the vaccine rollout is still going well. Um, people are starting to grumble about it. You know, the final relaxation on the 19th of July is still controversial, but he just has to wait and politics will re- return to normal. I mean, he obviously has to have something to say about the condition of people's lives and the fact that taxes are going to have to go up and all the rest of it. But I, I'm sure he will. And I think then he will get a hearing. How is he doing at PMQs? Last week's felt stronger for him. Yeah, no, he's he's getting better. I mean, the the critical thing about um, Keir Starmer is that he's he hasn't been in politics for very long. I mean, he was only first elected in 2015. And, you know, that inexperience shows. I mean, he wasn't a, a full-time politician before that. So the question is whether he can learn. And I think he, you know, the evidence so far 
is that he can and he is learning. I mean, he, he's he's doing a lot, a lot of things right. I don't know if he'll ever come across as a sympathetic and charismatic personality, but he's already achieved the most important thing, I think, which is that people can imagine him as prime minister. They can imagine him in Downing Street running the country because they think he's basically competent and knows what he's doing. Arthur, what should what do you think Starmer should focus on at this point? Well, one area he clearly has a lot of credentials on is crime and having been the director of public prosecutions. And of course, it as Labour proved back in the Tony Blair era, it can be a really good issue for Labour if they approach it in the right way. It seems to me that there's a potential for Starmer to show that he's a serious person who cares about things that affect normal people and perhaps contrast with Boris Johnson, who feels like the sort of person who might think that crime is all a bit of a jape. But I agree with John that, you know, politics has to go back to normal probably before that sort of campaign where you sort of grind away at the government's credibility could really take off. So is this a moment for cautious optimism or should we not get carried away? Clearly, for Labour supporters and people who don't want to see George Galloway succeed, it was a brilliant result. But I still think we have to remember that this is just Labour managing to stand still in a situation where the Conservatives have a huge majority. And for as long as the SNP dominate in Scotland, it's impossible to see how Labour can form a government in the majority. And any other type of government would be incredibly fragile coalition. So it still looks like a very, very high mountain that Keir Starmer has to climb. And it's really hard to imagine how he's going to do that. Cases are rising fast, hospitalisations are up a little bit, but the government line is that we now need to learn to live with COVID. And on 19th of July, you'll no longer have to socially distance or wear a mask. That 100-person house party you've been waiting for, it's on. On the other hand, it's not clear whether double-vaxxed people will still have to self-isolate and whether school bubbles will go, which are arguably pretty major reasons not to call this Freedom Day. John, since Matt Hancock left us for the warm embraces of Gino Colodangelo, there's been a marked shift in the government's tone, hasn't there? Yes, uh, I mean, clearly Sajid Javid has uh, seized that opportunity quite cannily, I think, to uh, shift the, the, the rhetoric. I mean, he hasn't actually said anything uh, substantively different from what Matt, Matt Hancock was saying, but he's just said it, said the words in a different order, such as when he first spoke in the House of Commons as uh, health secretary, he said, my task is to open up the economy and the culture of this great country. Uh, and then he added almost as an afterthought, you know, while protecting the health of the uh, of the people in the NHS. It's a trick with mirrors so far, change of tone. The unlocking will go ahead on the 19th, as it would have done if Matt Hancock had been there, but it would just feel uh, slightly different. And actually, I'm not sure whether that's helping the government because it's provoking something of a reaction from a a lot of people who think that the government's going too fast. It is great news for the events industry and hospitality, obviously, but if cases skyrocket, will so many people be self-isolating or just unwilling to risk getting infected that things will effectively grind to a halt again? No, I don't think so, because as long as hospitalizations and later deaths stay low, I think people will have to get used to it. I mean, I think there'll be a lot of complaints. A lot of people won't go out. A lot of people will insist on carrying on uh, wearing masks. But I think for most people, 
they will decide that the risks to themselves personally are low and they will just go out and um, and do what they what they're doing anyway i mean the, the the changes on the 19th are actually not hugely significant for most people i suppose they're very important for hospitality because it means you can get more people in pubs and restaurants uh, and back back to normal but from the consumer's point of view i don't think life is going to change that much Schools don't have any meaningful steer yet on whether bubbles will continue or indeed if teenagers will be vaccinated. We effectively don't know whether the government's going for herd immunity via vaccination or via infection. Why is the government being so indecisive on this? (laughs) Because I don't think it knows whether it's possible to see the virus recede completely as it appeared to do in Israel, um, although it's, uh, you know, the the new Delta variant has has made something of a comeback in Israel, or whether the only way of seeing it through is to assume that most school children are going to get the virus in the end, and that will be that'll be the way of completing the uh, the immune cycle. But uh, I don't think the government knows, and I don't think anybody really knows how it's going to how it's going to pan out. But I do think it's just so important to get. Uh, pupils back in school, that I think that should override all other considerations. Arthur, the new mantra is personal responsibility. The LSE did some research last autumn and it said that there wasn't actually a partisan divide in people's willingness to wear masks, which was quite heartening, though Labour supporters were a bit more likely to do it to protect other people rather than to protect themselves. Should we just leave it up to individuals to decide? I don't think so, because the, the point about the mask is that it reduces risk of infection to others. And in certain environments, such as public transport, very obviously, it's in everyone's benefit. And it's hard to see in what way it really reduces your sort of quality of existence, whether or not you have to wear a mask. So I, I can't really understand why it's even something that's worth arguing about. I mean, it doesn't involve any real deprivation of liberty. This is what I never quite understand about the mask issue. In fact, that's arguably the opposite, because you can do more things more safely if you're wearing a mask. So getting rid of them feels almost wantonly reckless. Do you think public opinion agree tends to agree with that? Well, as far as I'm aware, it seems to. You, you see lots of people wearing masks in environments where they don't really need to, which to me suggests that they've become used to it and they're reasonably comfortable with it. And I think also, you know, if people who've travelled in Southeast Asia or whatever will be well aware that it's nothing unusual about seeing someone wearing a mask on a busy train or whatever in, in somewhere like Singapore or Hong Kong. So I'm not really sure why why it's sort of become a debate. I think, you know, some of this is political. Some people want the mask to be a symbol, a sort of mar- an identifying marker, I suppose. But I don't think that that's at all the case of where sort of British people are. Because in America, of course, it has become a symbol, and you know it, people say they can you know almost spot a Democrat by the fact that they're wearing a mask, and vice versa for Republicans. Is there a danger that we will slip into that and start seeing each other in this polarized way as selfish or not selfish? Well, there's, there does seem to be a wider thing here, which is going on where because of the incoherence of the sort of conservative political platform at the moment. They're desperately trying to pursue this culture war concept because it's the only thing they seem to think that unites people, but the problem or unites their people. The problem with it is, as far as I can tell, is that most people are not sort of obsessively following the to and fro of of kind of media commentary and Twitter storms and all the rest of it. 
And as I say, I, the people I see wearing masks in a sort of what you might regard as overly cautious manner tend to be fairly elderly people, people who might otherwise be naturally on the sort of conservative side of the political divide. So I don't know. I mean, it really, it really seems to me that it just requires a bit of political leadership of the sort that I doubt Boris Johnson is able to offer, where you stand up and say, come on, everybody, we can carry on wearing masks and still get almost all of our previous life back. So let's just do it and not argue about it. But that sort of pragmatic kind of big tent approach, I just don't think is is in his nature. So you'll be keeping your mask after the 19th? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I, I'm not somebody who is is particularly vulnerable in, in you know, to, to COVID. But obviously, I, I don't want to be someone who's spreading it to other people. And it doesn't, it hasn't yet sort of spoiled my day having to wear it. Aisha, have you got used to masks now? Oh, I absolutely love my mask, but that's because I'm a Muslim woman. And I think that basically Boris Johnson is it, it, the reason he wants to get rid of masks is he's still haunted by his words calling all Muslim women that wore niqabs bank robbers or sort of letterboxes. Maybe he's scared of being accused of turning Britain into like Sharia law. Maybe that's the kind of thing. But I will definitely keep wearing my mask. I actually really like wearing my mask. I got ID'd the other day when I was buying a bottle of wine because I had my mask on. So I felt very pleased with myself. <laughs> a couple <laughs> I got to the stage now where I look so terrible post-lockdown, I look better wearing a mask than, I, than, than without. So I'm going to be keeping my mask on for, for quite a long time. But it's interesting, YouGov have just done some research this afternoon and 71% of Brits say that face masks should continue to be made mandatory on public transport for um, a, further pe- a further period of, of time. 66% say that they should continue to wear them in shops. So I think the British public probably, a lot of people will just keep wearing masks, you know, just to be sensible. I mean, we see other Asian countries um, doing it post-SARS. So Again, if they're trying to be populist and, you know, like this is the thing that everybody really, really cares about. Some people are saying that there is going to be a culture war around um, the mass. I mean, I'm not I'm not quite so sure um, about that. Yeah, I've got quite used to them now. And there are some actually which are quite comfortable and I like the designs on them, which I could never have imagined um, um, over, over a year ago when they seemed hideously uncomfortable. So it just goes to show how you quickly get used to these things. I know, but I'm also going to miss um, the thing I'm not going to, the thing I'm really going to miss is table service in bars as well. Like I don't want to be queuing up for half an hour to get a drink. And that's probably when I'm going to have to wear my mask because it's going to be like being on the tube again in rush hour, you know, queuing up to get a drink. So there's some things I do hope that we do kind of keep from, you know, during the pandemic. And I hope we all keep up some basic cleanliness because I think the pandemic has shone a light on just how minging we all were beforehand. Like, (laughs) do you know what I mean? Nobody washed their hands ever. Like we were so filthy. We were beasts beforehand. (laughs) Other European countries are rapidly catching up with us on vaccines, despite our early advantage, but we'll be the first European country to open up fully. And as cases are rising quickly, does this feel like a risk worth taking? Oh, it's so difficult because I know that the travel industry is absolutely desperate to to get going and so many people are desperate to get a holiday. And unless you were Matt Hancock and very smugly booked your holiday in, you know, was it Cornwall or Devon about six months ago, it's really hard to even get a staycation now. And it's all so expensive. So I think this is really hard. But what I think will be interesting is if our cases keep racing up the way they're going, 
many other countries may not want us to come. They may decide to sort of actually themselves sort of change the rules. So I think I can understand why people want to go on holiday, but it just feels incredibly risky right now. And I don't know what insurance companies are going to be doing just to give people that comfort in case things do move around very quickly from green to amber. Now, if you've been following recent by-elections, NIMBY is a recurrent theme, but increasingly we're also hearing from YIMBYs, or Yes in My Backyard. What has the pandemic and the resultant stay-at-home messaging done to the idea of YIMBYism, and where should party policy go when it comes to building more houses? We spoke to someone who's at the forefront of the YIMBY movement. Hi, my name is Chris Worrell, and I'm the editor of the Red Brick blog and co-host of the Priced Out podcast. YIMBY stands for Yes In My Backyard, and it's a term for a movement that originated from North America, which now spans from Tehran to Sao Paulo, from the UK to South Korea, which have recently announced new innovative housing supply model. It is an evidence-based movement that calls for consensus on the impact a shortage of housing has on our society, and it's a movement that advocates ambitious reforms focused on supplying enough homes in places where people want to live to meet demand. YIMBYs are often people most affected by the housing crisis, whether it be a nurse or electrician who can't get on the housing ladder, the teacher or the student who has to pay over 50% of their income on rent, someone in their third age, over 65, living in housing no longer suitable for their needs. It is that single mother with children leaving an overcrowded accommodation or the homeless army veteran who's at the bottom of the social housing waiting list that is now tens of thousands of people long. We're a collection of people who are standing up to the powerful NIMBY movement, or not in my backyard. These are typically upper to middle class, mostly white homeowners who are unfairly amplified in planning decisions. NIMBYs want to stop new homes being built or campaign for fewer homes, which makes the housing crisis worse. YIMBYism spans right across the political spectrum. That is the beauty of YIMBYism. Our movement is non-partisan, and nor should it be. YIMBYism is the only thing that I have seen that unites Tory, Labour, Lib Dem or Green together around a common cause. Sadly, the same is true for NIMBYism. The COVID pandemic has made the idea of YIMBYism vastly more powerful. It has highlighted the acuteness of housing affordability issues on society to an extent never seen before. YIMBYs are shining a light on the hypocrisy and double standards of many local objectors to new housing as well as the unsubstantiated supply scepticism used to make ill-informed points. Rising house prices over the past year and problems with house sharing, along with poor quality homes, mean that we need to change. Working from home has highlighted the need for suitable living space. The rise of the boffice or the bedroom office has meant that many people have decided to flee London and city centres in search of more space. Rents have dropped, but this will be temporary. YIMBYs know that in the long run, supply shortage will continue to exacerbate our housing issues. The Conservative planning legislation would mean for the YIMBY movement if it was passed, better housing outcomes. It will move us away from that case-by-case system where NIMBYs can scream their heads off to try and stop new homes. A key political question is that it is trying to boost home ownership. But we do need to think about renters, private and social, and those with complex needs and how to support them too whether that's through the planning system or not, or other parts of the welfare state. We need to sort of really put partisan politics 
behind us. We've seen in America how we, under the Biden administration, they are going to cancel the culture of NIMBYism and they are making progressive land use changes. And that is a bipartisan approach, as it is for how they fund low-income housing through the low-income housing tax credit. We do need to see planning legislation performed. And once the white paper puts more details on that, we should be able to debate the details rather than just rhetoric. Aisha, why do you think Labour put out that rather nimbyish tweet warning that developers would build on your green spaces without your say? I mean, surely Labour should be standing up for young people. Well, I think this was just like very kind of, you know, targeted local politics without joining things up. It's a bit like in Batley in Spain, there was a really controversial leaflet of the Prime Minister shaking hands with Pre- uh, Prime Minister uh, Modi from India. And, you know, people were like, you seriously saying that if Keir Starmer became Prime Minister, he was never going to meet with the Prime Minister of India? Like, really? A, that's ludicrous. And B, it's just upset lots of Indian people across the country, including my parents, who are Indian and Muslim, and they were still upset by that leaflet. I think sometimes Labour just doesn't think that sort of strategically across these things in the heat of a by-election. Although, however, the Tories were also accusing the Liberal Democrats, who of course won that by-election. I mean, Robert Jenrick had a real go at the Liberal Democrats, saying that they were being really nimbyish as well, and that they were saying that Liberal Democrats don't want anybody to have a home. I mean, everything was getting slightly kind of ridiculous. But something does need to be done on the housing thing. So I thought this was a bit misplaced from Labour. Arthur, you're in rural Gloucestershire. I, I see your house sometimes on Zooms and it looks it looks fairly idyllic, to be honest. I think you even have poultry, don't you? Is that correct? I do. Yes. Uh, I, I live in I live in a sort of the cover of one of those chocolate boxes, you know, with roses on the wall and all that. Oh, and you've got poultry. <laughs> I've got a Nando's near me. That's about as close. <laughs> you've, got, you've got ex-poultry. <laughs> <laughs> Former poultry. Not the same poultry, I fear. What's the attitude to building houses like around you in, in the in the rural counties? Well, I won't lie to you. I don't think you, you have a population that is embracing the concept. But having said that, I know for a fact that there's quite a lot of people in the village I live in, in a nice way, there's lots of people whose parents have also come from this village and who want to live, continue to live in this village and see their children live in this village. And they're very worried about the, the cost of housing. There are people where I live, which is quite a long way west in Gloucestershire, you you know, people can't commute to London. It, you, if you're going to be working, you'll be working locally. And it is increasingly unaffordable. Uh, and so I, I've heard people say that if, if there were housing projects in our village that were to help local people stay in the area, they'd support them. Uh, so I think that points to something which is a wider thing which comes back to what you guys were talking about earlier about the sort of the big housing developers. I think it's a very easy hit to sort of go after, say, the Lib Dems uh, when when they sort of attack the, the current proposals on housing. One of the points here is that it does look as though it's designed to just make it easy for extremely large and rather cynical companies to build huge housing developments without much concern except for the sort of profit motive. And of course, the way a lot of these developments have been constructed are in ways that don't particularly make it easy for people sort of at the bottom of the housing ladder to get on. So I think, you know, there aren't any simple answers. Uh, and and certainly people who live in beautiful rural areas have to be a bit realistic about the fact that, you know, other people need places to live as well. John, is the planning bill going to survive, do you think? Because it seems to be making Tory MPs very uncomfortable. I have to confess, I'm not sure 
precisely what's in it because um, I sort of feel I don't really need to know because, um, you know, this idea of relaxing planning uh, law so that people can build just about everywhere is is never going to happen. I mean, it's just electorally impossible, whether you're a, whether you're a YIMBY or a NIMBY. There are enough NIMBYs around uh, to ensure that, you know, you can't just build build everywhere. I mean, I live in um, East London, uh, so I'm a, I'm a Yimby really because the population of Tower Hamlets has doubled um, since the, the 1980s, and that's the kind of development that I think the country needs. I mean, we don't don't actually need new houses in Gloucestershire. Uh, we need flats in in um, you know, what are called brownfield sites in London because everybody want everybody wants to live in London. Everybody in the world wants to live in London, and you know you can build. You can build box boxy houses in the home counties, but that's not really going to make any difference to um, to house prices across the UK. Well, speaking of brownfield sites, I saw over the weekend that John Lewis are going to build rental flats on their vacant stores now that everybody's buying everything online. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure how Carrie, uh, sorry, ex Simmons, Carrie Johnson now feels like feels about that. <laughs> Well, well, I think that's a very sensible idea because, you know, obviously retailing is one of the things that's really changed and the pandemic has accelerated that. I mean, there's going to be an awful lot of vacant property on high streets and an awful lot of um, office buildings. I mean, London's full of, um, I mean, they're still building new skyscrapers of offices, which I imagine they're going to have some difficulty filling and they're going to have to convert those to residential. That would mm. That would actually... Um, have a huge effect on the on, on the housing problem. I, I love the idea of John Lewis by uh, building flats. I love John Lewis. For me, it's like the equivalent of Tiffany's for me, like nothing bad could ever happen at John <laughs> Lewis. So mm-hmm. I would be first in line to actually just go and live in John Lewis. I think that'd be amazing. And I presume there's like a waitrose there as well. I mean, it's like middle class <laughs> heaven. Yeah, there's going to be a waitrose on every site and you're basically oh. going to be able to have John Lewis furniture. So Carrie's nightmare in your flat. <laughs> Last week, a statue of Diana was unveiled by her sons in Kensington Gardens. It shows her in a very 80s outfit with her arms around two children. Diana has a surprisingly masculine jaw for the icon of femininity she always was and the critics didn't hold back. Awkward, stiff, lifeless, mawkish said The Guardian's Jonathan Jones. Piers Morgan declared it dull, not great. And when people objected, he said the ones urging him to hashtag be kind were the woke who were bullying and abusing him. (laughs) Never miss an opportunity. eh? It's not what she would have wanted. Or is it? Aisha, what was your first impression of the statue? Well, I've become a bit frightened of statues since the one of Mary Wollstonecraft up in Stoke Newton. So I was just relieved that Diana had some clothes on, unlike <laughs> poor Mary or Silver Tits, as we call her, because she's so cold <laughs> up. And when it's winter, feminists were going up and knitting jumpers for her and putting it over her and stuff like that. So I was just relieved that she was clothed. But I was disappointed with it because I'm such a huge Diana fan. I think particularly as I sort of get older and I look back on her life, I think she was a real trailblazer and a real pioneer. And she did do things differently. And she took on lots of social conservative norms. She took on the establishment of the royal family. She sort of took on the press to a certain degree. You know, she was 
she had this really tumultuous life, but at the end of it, she was this very empowered woman and she was beautiful and she was sexy and she was vibrant. She had this incredible energy and there was nothing about that energy in the statue. I thought the statue was really dull. It was very grey. She sort of looked like she was, the sort of outfit she was wearing, it was a kind of like Eastern Bloc prison warden sort of <laughs> outfit. It was so unglamorous. Like, why didn't they do a sculpture of her in one of her beautiful, like, ball gowns or evening dresses or something like that? So I think it was a bit of a, a of a disappointment. But it was nice to see the, the two princes there together and there was no punch-up. There, there wasn't a massive stooshy. It wasn't like um, the end of an episode of EastEnders. So I think for that, we can be grateful. <laughs> yeah, but part of us was actually hoping for that, weren't we? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, John, Diana was a was a royal, but she lived in an era when the royals didn't exert much formal power, obviously. Do statues only really work when we're expected to look up at them in fear and awe, kind of Nelson's column style? Oh no, no, no. She was the she was the people's princess. She was uh, the new Labour uh, icon. Um so you need a <laughs> you need an accessible statue and I was ready to slag it off but then I then I heard you say that Piers Morgan didn't like it so I think it's an absolutely fabulous statue. <laughs> <laughs> the beautiful piece of statuary I've ever seen uh, and I shall be going to uh, pray at its feet um, every week from now on. Good. <laughs> statues, statues of Queen Victoria and the Queen have just been torn down in Canada by people who are angry about the deaths of children at Indigenous schools there. Are statues of British kings and queens and prime ministers now straightforwardly problematic? Yeah, well, are they? I don't know. I mean, it depends what people think they stand for. I mean, I think that we've got far too many statues in, in London anyway, so it wouldn't do any harm to tear some of them down. I don't know how many they've got in British Columbia. Uh, but if that makes them you know, feel better, then I, you know, and if it presumably wasn't a valuable work of art and I, I can't get too upset about it I thought when that Colston statue was torn down in Bristol I thought that was a reasonable expression of the popular will there is a really bad one in Soho Square of Charles II which is in a, just a terrible terrible condition <laughs> I don't know if it ever looked anything like Charles II when it was <laughs> after it was made but the condition it's in now it's 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 absolutely well, there was there was that awful one of Ronaldo which looked nothing like oh, yeah. Ronaldo hilarious I think statues are getting so bad you wouldn't want to have a statue done of yourself now I think they're having you know for all our sort of fighting about them who would want a really bad statue done of themselves yeah, because you can't really have fun anyway anymore. I mean, the best one is Boudicca because because she's racing that chariot next to the Houses of Parliament. And you're never going to get any best than that, frankly, are you? <laughs> Not the same just sitting on a horse. Anyway, Arthur, there's an argument that this art form is just redundant in an age when we can call up images of the famous so easily. We don't need to be reminded of what people looked like. So is it time to stop making these statues? Well, it might be. I mean, it, it, it does seem as though it's, it's almost impossible to create a statue of a contemporary figure that doesn't either disappoint or sort of cause radical dismay. So maybe let, let's just do something else, you know. But what else? That's the question. Should we do anything? Well, she's, I mean, Princess Diana's already got a, like a memorial pond and, a, and those things that you can walk around or like a trail and everything, hasn't she? I mean... We're not about to get her, I don't think. I think she needs a TikTok video. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Arthur, are there any statues that you do admire? Well, I'll tell you, I'm glad you asked me this. If you go into uh, medieval churches, you find those grand tombs where the very important person who has been buried is depicted as a kind of rotting corpse. As a, you know, they're all, they're all kind of like skeletal. And I think it was a medieval sculptor's way of showing that even the great and powerful, you know, are, are brought low and are just miserable rotting skeletons one day. So I think mm. if we are going to have contemporary people, we should depict them in this way as a sort of reminder of the frailty of humanity. The memento mori thing, basically exactly. just the skull of Gareth Southgate one day. Yeah, yeah indeed, yeah. indeed, you know, <laughs> sick transit and all that. No, don't imagine, I can't imagine, I don't imagine that time, Ros. <laughs> Are you a fan, Aisha? Oh my God, I'm like absolutely besotted with Gareth Southgate. He is the leader that we all need right now. <laughs> We're not saying we'd go out and tear one down today, but is there a statue that really needs to go that anybody would like to nominate? I mean, I mentioned Charles II. Well, there's Cromwell outside uh, the the House of Commons um, on a horse. Uh, I mean, that one really needs needs to go, I think. Um, And there's also Jan Smuts. Oh, yeah. Presumably a more controversial figure now than he was when that statue was put up. There are also, I mean, central London is just cluttered with unnecessary yeah. statues, many of which mm. should be tactfully removed. I mean, in lots of Soviet countries, they have these parks where old statues have been taken down and, and, and just put in a park, you know, old statues of Stalinist figures from the from the bad old days. We should we should have a park like that somewhere, somewhere probably in Gloucestershire, where we just put all <laughs> these unwanted <laughs> London statues. <laughs> That's going to be a new nimbyism, isn't it? Yeah, no statues in my backyard. <laughs> it could be a pilgrimage site for the non-woke. Um. <laughs> I think they're here already. <laughs> you could just have GB News doing an outside broadcast from that statue park, like, constantly. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of this week's Bunker. And as usual, it's time for Escape Routes. What are the TV, films, music, books and miscellaneous other things that are taking our panellists' minds away from the nerve-wracking world of politics and perhaps football? Arthur, what are yours? I was unsurprisingly sort of thinking quite a lot about Afghanistan in the last um, few days. And I've got a big pile of books about Afghanistan, not surprisingly, having spent plenty of time there. But they're mostly quite depressing books about, you know, why did everything go wrong there? But there's a wonderful book by Freya Stark who... Those who aren't familiar is this, you know, amazing 20th century female traveller, writer. And she travelled to Afghanistan in the 1960s when it was an incredibly unknown place to the outside world. A very little visited. And it's a book that isn't about civil war or the heroin trade or extremist uh, Islamist, um, you know, behaviour or anything else. It's a book about sort of a voyage of, of discovery for her and the beautiful, incredible architecture and history of that country. And it's a book called The Minaret of Jam. So I I recommend it to anybody who'd like to know about Afghanistan and know about the good bits. Aisha, what's your escape route? God, I feel terrible. Arthur's is like really noble and really intellectual. (laughs) Mine is Love Island. (laughs) (laughs) That's more like it. Which too is about a very powerful journey in terms of... I mean, it's just all tans, tits and teeth, and that's just the boys. I mean, I just love it. I can't get enough of it. I know, I know, I know it's terrible, but I do. It does make me switch off from all the other madness that's happening in the world right now. And Gareth Southgate, obviously. And Gareth Southgate, of course. John, what's your escape route? 
Well, no, Gareth Southgate is my escape route. I mean, uh, I don't have much of a <laughs> of a hinterland uh, outside politics at all. So, you know, football football is it. Um, and I mean, you know, I'm I'm not interested in football at all. I, I mean, most you know, most of my life, I've just thought of it as you know, eleven people on a pitch trying to pass the the ball to each other and mostly failing and not um, not scoring any goals. But actually, this tournament has has been rather different from that. They've passed to each other, and um, there's been quite a few goals, and it's been quite interesting to watch. It has, hasn't it? Because actually, the England Ukraine game was the first football game I have actually watched, pretty much from start to finish in my entire life, and, well, and that's great. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was it was an enjoyable experience, and I especially enjoyed dispensing, you know, sage wisdom towards the end of it in, in football commentary terms. <laughs> yeah, good cross. <laughs> well, I'm looking tired now. You know. <laughs> you know, I think we need some uh, fresh legs now. Yeah. <laughs> but also, Gareth Southgate is so good. He's even made Scottish people who want independence support England. I mean, it is he. I think he is the man to save the union. I really do. That's a very good thought. At the end of your Gareth Southgate fan podcast. And I- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So my escape route um, was actually not too much of an escape, but it was still a bit cathartic. It was the BBC iPlayer drama Together uh, with James McAvoy and Sharon Horgan. And it managed to convey the claustrophobia of lockdown really, really well. But also how it could be at times weirdly emotionally cathartic. It was quite painful to watch, but I was really glad that I watched it. So that is that is a recommendation. And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thanks to Arthur Snell. Thank you. Aisha Hazarika. Thank you very much. And to our special guest, John Rentoul. My pleasure. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Do follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or your favourite app. Remember, you can back The Bunker on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast and you can get the podcast early, get our splendid merchandise and access to our live Zooms. Backers get an honorary salute on the show and here are some now. So it's best wishes from me to Damien Dugdale, Duke Tran and John Ierson. And many thanks from me to James Clark, Marion Sacherin and Henry Williams. And finally, best wishes from me to Ben Plumley, Guy Jackson and Mrs E. Levy. The Bunker was presented by Ros Taylor with Arthur Snell and Aisha Hazarika. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Dirk Archbold and Yelda Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.